Well, we are so glad you are here. We are in week two of our Unconditional Family series. We're talking about what does it look like when we put this family thing together and we function the way God designed the church to function. What can that look like in our lives, in our individual families, but mostly in our community and in the lives of people around us? And so last week, um, Pastor Mike kicked it off in an incredible way. If you didn't hear that message, you should go back, um, download the app and and check it out. Uh, But his main point was this as he was talking about how important it is for us to be unified is that when there is unity, anything is possible. And we truly believe that. And when we're unified, not just us in here, but across our other campuses, and you heard Pastor Mike talk about it at Vision Night uh, last Sunday night, even with other churches in our community, when we are unified together, there is nothing that God can't do. And uh, we're so excited about that. And so we're going to continue to talk about what this looks like as we live it out, this unconditional family, what it looks like in our lives and in our community. Now, several years ago, uh, it was about a, a week and a half before Christmas, and uh, our family, we were living in California the first time that we lived in California, and uh, we had gotten notification from the government that we were no longer allowed to live in the United States, and it was time for our family to, uh, to go back to Canada for a period of time. Uh, that's a long story for another message another time, but uh, we, broke our, we broke our lease on our apartment, we quit our jobs, we had packed up our place, and we were literally just a few days from leaving the United States and going back to Canada and figuring out some immigration stuff, uh, when we were in a a car accident, and and we, I mean our family, our son Ty, he was five at the time, and although I think he enjoyed us spinning around on the highway, he thought it was a Disney ride at first, um, he ended up with some broken glass in his cheek and was definitely in a little bit of shock. Other than that, he was was fine, um, but he kind of suffered a little bit in that. My wife, Laura, she broke her collarbone and uh, suffered some, some nasty contusions, one on her head and her leg and a few other spots. And so she was pretty beat up and and banged up from this accident. And fortunately of the three of us, I took the worst of it and uh, got hit by a a truck after we had kind of already spun out. And I broke most of me um, in different places. And part of what got broken for me was my face. And um, here's the deal. What I realized and discovered is if you're going to have to have plastic surgery, living in Southern California is the best place to have (laughs) plastic surgery, right? I mean, that's what, that's what people give out for birthday gifts and graduation presents is there, oh, I got something nipped or tucked or whatever you want to do. And then as I started thinking about it, I started to see pictures of Joan Rivers and thought, maybe not, right? Maybe, maybe that's too soon. I, I don't know, um, right? But here we were, we were in Southern California. I had to have plastic surgery. And what you don't understand, people, is that before this accident, I was gorgeous, I really was. I mean, this is humble as I can be. I was just flat out. I was a good looking man. Um, And then this accident happened. And every day since I get up, I look in the mirror and I'm, why God, why have you caused me to suffer in in such ways? Could I have to live like this? And in fact, I found an old picture. It's not great quality, but an old picture of what I used to look like. That's what I used to look like before the accident. And uh, so now you understand, right, the suffering that I deal with on a daily basis. Uh, I ended up in the hospital for almost a month. I had over a dozen surgeries over the next several months. And, um, and it was a crazy, crazy situation. Although I had my living quarters kind of set up for that first month, um, my family didn't. Because we were homeless, right, we were also jobless, which led us to become moneyless. And because I had wrecked our only car, we were carless as well. There was a lot of less going on in our lives at that time. Uh, And it's when you go through difficult times like that is when you really realize 
who the people are around you. Do they really care about me? Are they really going to stand up? The ones that I, I thought were our friends, are they still our friends? And, and maybe you can relate to something similar to that. You see, we had people in our lives, we had friends and we had neighbors and coworkers who stepped up in incredible, incredible ways. And um, they took care of my family. When we were homeless, they provided, we had families that provided actually two homes for us over the next several months. In part-time, we lived um, on a golf course. We were really suffering. The other was on an oceanside condo. We watched dolphins jumping in the ocean every morning while we had breakfast. Well, I didn't because I was in the hospital, but my family did, um, and they enjoyed that. Right? We had people that gave us a car until we were able to figure out our, our car situation. We had people that gave us um, money and, and gas cards and groceries and took care of our family. The private school that my wife had worked at, uh, even though she had quit her job, they contacted her and said, we would love for Ty to come back to school. Let's try and give him some kind of a normal life while you guys deal with this. And we're not going to charge you for any of that. And, and as I said, this was just before Christmas, when Christmas hit, probably one of the most difficult Christmases we've ever had, and yet, at the same time, God provided in incredible ways, and, and people stepped up and, and invested in the life of, of Ty especially, and, and provided this incredible Christmas for a kid that was in this crazy stage of transition and uncertainty in his life. But we also had some friends, we also had some coworkers, we had people that were in our lives who kind of disappointed and, and really disappeared from our lives during this time. We had people that passed on, hey, make sure you tell Donnie and Laura that, that we love them and we're thinking about them, but we never heard from them again or saw anything of them afterwards. We had friends, we had coworkers, we had people that we thought were really close to us that just never showed up at all. And you know what we realized during that is something that, that all of us know is that every word in our lives is accompanied by action. And inaction is as powerful as action is. A person's actions will tell you everything that you need to know about them because actions prove who someone is. Our words prove who we want to be. But the reality is, is we've all done this, right? We've all had people in our lives, we've said, hey, I'll give you a call, and then we, we don't call, right? We've told people, I'll pray for you, and then we forget to do it. Right? We, we've had those situations. We've said, I'll clean my room, and then we get distracted by other things. I'll, I'll serve in a ministry, and then we get too busy. I'll read my Bible, right? but then we, we don't find time to do it. I'm going to start exercising, but, but then I get a little lazy, and I don't follow through. I'm going to stop drinking or smoking or looking at those things online, and yet there's always a reason. There's always something that comes along that, that causes us to, to not always match up our words and our actions. You see, in life, we prove our worth through our actions, not our words alone. What do you call someone who says something, but then they don't follow through with their actions? What do you call that person? This is, you can participate at this point. What do we call that person? A irresponsible, a hypocrite, right? We, we hear that word. And sometimes the church gets this label, right? That, that we're hypocrites. And I think sometimes it's unfair right? Because there can't be an expectation for us to be perfect. That's unrealistic. But there are a lot of times where the church says a lot of things and the church doesn't do the things that match those words. There's a lot of times where we say we feel a certain way or there's a certain way that we're going to live our lives and yet the actions that accompany those words aren't existing. And people look at us and say, if that's what this whole Jesus thing is, that you can talk one way, but you can live a completely different one, I don't know that I need that in my life. But what if we could change that, right? 
What if we, as, as a family, became not just a church and, and not just a, a place where we talk about things? You have to recognize and realize we have one of the greatest teachers, not only in the country, but probably in the world, that, that sits up here almost every single weekend and teaches us incredible things. As a church, we walk out of here and we say the right things all the time. But what if we became a church that our actions, the way that we lived our lives, matched the words that we said? What if we as individuals became individuals who our words and our actions complemented each other? Imagine what that would look like in the lives of our families, our coworkers, the classes that we have at school, wherever it is that we go. Imagine that kind of life. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn to John chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can follow along on the side screens. Um, let me give you a little bit of, of kind of backstory and, and history um, here, what's going on. Uh, Jesus is hanging out with his 12 closest friends, right? His 12 followers. Um, maybe you've heard the word disciples before, which literally just means students. These guys are hanging out with Jesus and there's a big celebration that's about to happen. And they've been hanging out for about three years together. Right? They, they've experienced everything that, that Jesus has modeled for them, everything that Jesus has shown them, they have watched. Right? They go everywhere Jesus goes. Everything that Jesus has said, they have heard and they have learned. Jesus has told them at different times, I want you to go and I want you to do those things. And they have gone out and they've done the things that Jesus said. Sometimes they failed, right? And we look at that sometimes and go, whew, right? That gives me a little bit of comfort in there that even those guys failed at times. A lot of times they got things right. And they watched God work in incredible ways in the lives of people that could only be explained and understood by God, right? And this is this group. There's these 12 guys, they're hanging out with Jesus, and they're in this room about to celebrate um, this, this festival that's about to happen. And this is hours, literally just hours, before Jesus is about to go ahead and go through several illegal and crooked trials, right? He is, he's literally going to be beaten nearly to death and then he is going to be taken and he's going to be hung on a cross where he is going to die for the sins of all humanity, of the entire world, everyone that's ever existed. And so this is the, the kind of the gravity of this situation. It's the final hours for Jesus. And look what he says and look what he does. In John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, it says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I read this, and, and, I, and I stop here for a second because I read this part, and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Seriously, Jesus? Right? I mean, it would have been way easier just to say, hey, way to go, guys, right? Some attaboys, maybe some high fives as the disciples were like entering the room or a, a good game, right, as they passed through the doorway. I mean, it would have been a lot easier for Jesus to say these things. And yet look what Jesus does. He decides to show his love by washing the feet of his followers. 
You have to understand, this is the job of a servant. This is a normal thing for them, right? In, in any home, when you walk in, one of the servants will get down and he'll wash your feet when you come in. Because back then in these days, they're walking on dirt roads, so it's dusty and dirty, and there's animals and the stuff that animals do, and they're wearing sandals, and it's caked all over their feet, right? And so when they would walk into someone's home, it's just the, the polite thing to do is you have one of your servants wash the feet of your guests when they enter in. But Jesus and disciples, they, they kind of rented this room, they walked in, and I don't know if Jesus was on the outside and, and, and kind of grabbed the, the servant before they went in and said, hey, you know what, I got this one tonight. Or if they just were economically, they saved a little on the budget by not renting the servant with the house. I'm not exactly sure what they did at this point, but here they are in this room, and, and it's 12 guys with dirty, nasty feet, and Jesus sitting there, and Jesus looks at them, and he gets up, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash their feet. Now, some of you may be out here and go, Donnie, I don't know if I believe in the Bible. And here's what I would say to you. To me, this is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is true because no dude in the history of the world would ever write this thinking it would convince anybody that this was reality, right? If they're trying to convince, this is a made-up story, we're trying to sell people on this, I know what'll do it. Let's take the God of the universe, we'll make him man, and we'll have him wash other guys' feet. That's believable, right? People will totally get behind that. There's no way another guy would do that. Right? I've seen a lot of men's feet, and they are nasty, right? I mean, some of you guys have toes out there, and, and it's not like normal toes. They're like this, right? I mean, you got toes sticking out sideways and some that are straight up and down. It's like you played football with your feet when you were growing up, and they're pretty jacked up. I've seen some of those. Some of you guys have hairy feet, crazy hairy feet. Like, you look at them, and you're like, dude, it's not cool to wear socks and sandals. And then you're like, oh, you're not wearing socks right? You got hobbit feet. It's like you got hobbit feet right there, and that's, that's nasty. There is no guy in the history of the world that, that doesn't read this and that the thought of having to wash other dudes' feet doesn't throw up a little in his mouth, right? I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. Now, moms... Moms, it's totally different. Moms, you're not phased at all by this, right? I know that we're going to have to work to impress you a little bit because you're like, feet? I've washed worse, Right? <laughs> And moms out there, I mean, it's stuff that Jesus does. There's a lot of moms that are not phased by it. They're like, feed 5,000? I call that Thanksgiving, right? No big deal. You're like, Jesus removed demons from people. I got a two-year-old. I do that every day before breakfast, right? Like, I recognize the moms out here. You're like, this is not a big deal at all. But for the guys, right, this is a terrible, terrible thing. I don't know if you've ever had to wash somebody's feet, right? And I'm not talking about like a cute little baby. I'm talking about like, like a post-pubescent, like a I don't know if you've ever had to do that, but it is, it's terrible, right? I mean, I get in the shower in the morning. Sometimes I don't even want to wash my own feet, right? Because they kind of gross me out a little bit, let alone someone else's between the toes, right? Like this is, this is terrible. For 20 years of, of teaching students and, and talking um, about this passage, every time I read this passage. This is the image that comes to my mind, and I apologize for it, but it is what it is. Check out the video screen and look at this. I can't help it. That that's got to be. I mean, these guys did not just have the Passover pedicure before this meal, right? Like, their feet are nasty and disgusting. And, and here is Jesus right, on his hands and knees, washing the feet of his disciples. 
One year we took a group of students to a camp and it was in Wisconsin, it was a work camp. And so every day we would go out and we would work on people's homes. And while we were doing that, we would tell them and, and try to show them who Jesus was. And we would come back to the high school that we were staying in and, and at night we would have a worship service and, and it was fantastic. Um, and if you've ever hung out with junior high and high school dudes for a period of time, um, showering, there's like food, girls. Showering's not anywhere on the radar, right, at all. Most of them didn't even have deodorant with them and, and you just kind of learned to live with it. It was like the last Last night, and the, the, the team that was running the camp kind of gathered us all together, and they said, guys, we just want to give you a heads up. Students are in the room. We're about to start any second, but here's what's going to happen tonight. We're going to sing some worship songs. We're going to share some stories. It's going to be a powerful, powerful night. We're like, this is great, right? And we're just about to start leaving the room, and oh, by the way, one last thing. Tonight, you're going to wash the feet of your students. All right, go get them, guys. Go get them. And we're sitting there going, whoa, hold on, hold on, what? What? And so it's, it's in this part of the service and, and all of a sudden I'm hanging out with, with my guys, my high school and junior high dudes. They haven't showered the entire time we've been here. I don't know how long it had been since they had showered before we even went there. As I'm grabbing their socks and, and starting to pull them down, they're literally just disintegrating in my hand, just poof, right? There's just nothing left and the smell just kind of comes up and punches me in the neck like every single time. And you're just like, this is disgusting. And here's Jesus, and I read this part, and look what it says. The Father had put all things under his power. The God of all creation, who has power to do anything and everything, gets on his hands and knees, taking the role of a servant, and begins washing the feet of his disciples. This is how he chooses to show his love. We pick it up in, in verse 6. It says this. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you was clean. Again, the, the easy thing, right? In, in this moment of, of, of nasty feet, Jesus is hours from going to the cross. The easy thing would have, have just been to tell them that I love them. But instead, Jesus has this incredible interaction, this intimate interaction with each of his disciples. And I imagine that when he gets to, to Peter, right, that, that he sits down and he begins to wash Peter's feet. And you, you hear this conversation. And Peter's like, no, 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 Jesus, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus is like, well, then you don't have any part of me. And he goes, oh, well, then, then all of me, Jesus, right? Maybe Peter's starting to, like, take his shirt off. He's like, give me a bath here, Jesus. Here we go. And, and he's in this, like, spiritually schizophrenic moment. And, and I have to wonder that, that Peter, that Jesus isn't going, God, seriously? This is the hope of the church. This is where we're going. This is your plan. And here's Jesus. He gets down and he shows them his love by washing their feet. And then I wonder if he gets to Thomas, and it doesn't say this in, in the text, but he gets to Thomas, and, and if you've read if it, parts of the Bible, you may have heard the name Doubting Thomas, right? And what that comes from is that at the end, after Jesus has died and, and he comes back to life, all the other um, 10 disciples, not Judas, but the others that had seen Jesus, Thomas didn't, and, and he didn't believe them. 
He said, I don't believe you saw Jesus until I see him myself and uh, until I have that interaction with him, I'm not gonna believe you at all. And so you get this sense that maybe Thomas is a little bit on the pessimistic side, right? A little bit negative. And, and I wonder if when Jesus gets to him and, and he starts untying his sandals and starts washing um, Thomas's feet that he's like, yeah, you can go ahead and wash them, Jesus, but I don't think you're gonna do a very good job right? I don't know that you've ever done this before. Oh, you missed a spot already, right? And, and, and I wonder if Jesus is going, seriously? But he shows how much he loves them by getting on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. And then it says he gets to Judas. And what we know from Judas is that Judas is literally just hours away from betraying Jesus, for selling him out. Judas gets rich, Jesus gets the cross. And here is Jesus Knowing what is about to happen, knowing who Judas is and knowing what Judas is about to do, and it would have been so easy for Jesus to go, not you, dude. No way, right? I'm, I'm going around you because we all know what's about to happen here. But that's not what Jesus does, does he? He's on his hands and his knees, and he begins to wash Judas's feet. And I wonder if somewhere in Jesus' heart that he's not going, God, I know that this is gonna go down the way it's gonna go down. But I want him to desperately know that I love him. And so I'm gonna show him the full extent of that love in this moment by even washing his feet. Henry Ford said this, don't find fault, find a remedy. There's lots of reasons why Jesus didn't need to do this, and yet he chose to, to show his love in this incredible way. And, and it leads us to this place to say, well, why? Why, Jesus, would you choose to do that? And here's what it says in, in verse 12. It says that when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. It would have been so much easier just to say I love you to get them, uh, each of them a gift card to Jerusalem Target and say, hey, it's been a great three years, guys. Thanks for hanging out with me. But Jesus literally chooses to show his love in action. And here's the good news. It's not literal. For some of you, you've been the last 10 minutes, you can take a deep breath now because you've been like, you've been planning your escape because if you see a single usher coming down the aisle with a bucket and a towel, right, you're like, I'm out of here if they're gonna ask me to do this tonight. Jesus doesn't mean that we literally need to go around washing people's feet. But here's what Jesus is setting an example for us to do. It says to refuse to serve others, to, to refuse to humble ourselves no matter how important we may be or we may think we are, is placing ourselves above Jesus. Here you've got God who gets on his hands and knees and takes on the role of a servant, gets as low as you can possibly get. And any time that we aren't willing to get on that same level, we're placing ourselves above Jesus. I love in this. Jesus blows all excuses away for, for, for not doing this. If anyone could have said, I'm too busy, right? Jesus is literally hours from going to the cross to save the world. Jesus easily could have said, I would love to do it. I just don't have time, but he doesn't. 
If anyone was too important to get on their hands and knees and wash the feet of, of his disciples, it was Jesus being God and all. But he does it. I mean, it would have been easy for Jesus to say, you know what, I've gotten a little bit dirty with you guys. I mean, we've been in some shady places, right? I went to Samaria. I've had conversations with tax collectors and I've, I've healed lepers. I mean, I've gotten dirty to an extent, but, but I'm not gonna go any further with this, but that's not Jesus, right? Jesus is between their toes, washing their feet. What I love about this is that these are the same disciples, 11 of these 12 men that are going to go out and they are gonna start the church and they are literally gonna change history. What an incredible, incredible thing. In verse 15, when Jesus says the word example, that I've set an example, it literally means a, a picture showing how something was to be done, a tracing that someone else could follow, filling in the details. And what you have after this from history tells us that Peter goes out, right? And Peter becomes a missionary in, in several different places. And he writes two books in the New Testament. You get John who goes out and he's sharing Christ with people all over the place. And he writes five books in the New Testament. You have Matthew who becomes a missionary in Iran and, and he wrote the book of Matthew. You have Thomas who becomes a missionary in Afghanistan, right? You have these disciples that go out and God uses them in incredible ways. And what if when Jesus said, I want you to go and to follow my example and love people this way, what if those disciples had said, you know what, Jesus, let us pray about it. Right? We're going to pray about this one because we all know what that really means. It means I'm not going to do it, but I don't want to say no in front of you and, and I, just, I just need a little bit more time to figure out a better excuse. So Jesus, let, let, let us just kind of pray about it. But that's not what they do, is it? You have these guys that go out and what Jesus taught them was if you're going to reach people before you even begin to teach is that you show them that you love them. You put your words into action. You see, what we say should always be connected to what we do. Our actions and our words need to match up. And here's what Jesus says in verse 17, and I love this. If you're wondering what's in it for me, it's this. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you hope someone else does it for you. That's not what he said, is it? You'll be blessed if you tell other people it's their job to go and do those things. No. Jesus says you will be blessed if you do it. If you put this into practice, you will be blessed. And literally that word blessed means happy, joyful, fulfilled, not simply because of what we know, but because of what we do with what we know. You see, what we say should always be connected to what we do. Now, here's the danger that a lot of us face. I can convince myself that I'm a compassionate person simply because every once in a while I have compassionate feelings. I can look at, a mat, at an ad in a magazine or see a commercial on TV and see a picture of a hungry child and I can feel sorry for that child. And I can convince myself that I'm compassionate because I feel sadness even if I don't do anything about it. I can see a post on Facebook and I can be moved, I can like it, I can share it, I can even comment on it. And sometimes we think that I've done my part. But do you see the irony in that? Looking compassionate isn't the same as being compassionate. But when you really become compassionate, it requires you getting involved with real people. 
It takes time and energy. It's not something that's just idealized anymore. It's not something that you can just romanticize. And people aren't always going to say thank you. It's going to get messy because you're dealing with real people in real life. You will get ripped off at times. And that's why it's tempting for us just to settle for having compassionate thoughts and compassionate feelings. But what Jesus shows us here is that it's not enough just to feel a certain way. It's not enough just to talk a certain way that our lives have to back up those things. It's not an emotional feeling. It's love as a verb that is lived out in the way that we live our lives. It's a call to action. And so what are you doing? What are we doing together as a church? Because here's what I absolutely believe. Every person in this room has the potential to be an agent of God's love in this community and around the world. It doesn't matter what your resources are. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are. You can be used to extend the love of God. And a few verses later, here's what what Jesus says in, in verse 34 and 35. He said, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The example he said isn't just words, it's love in action. You see, what we say has to be connected to what we do. So what if we took this seriously? Well, here's the two things that I would love for you to do, for us to do as a family together. One is it starts by identifying your who. You identify your who. Who are the people in your lives, the the family members? Maybe it's the the, the people that you live right next door to and, and in your community. Maybe the question is, who are the eight people that live right around you? I read this stat this week that less than 10% of us know the names of the eight people that live right around us. Less than 3% of us know one fact about all eight of those people, and less than 1% of us know at least one personal thing about the eight people that live right around where we live. Who is your who? Who is it that lives right there? Maybe for some of you, your who are the people that you work with. Maybe it's your employees. Maybe it's the clients that, that, that your company serves. Maybe it's your bosses and those in leadership over you. For some of you as students, right, maybe it's, it's the, the faculty at the school that you go to. Maybe it's the people that you are on a team with or you serve in, in a club with. Maybe it's the person in your English class or in your A-push class or the person in the, in the mechanical engineering program with you. Maybe it's that student that's sitting all by themselves in the cafeteria or hanging out on a bench after school that nobody else just ever seems to connect with. You don't ever see anybody else talking with them. Who is your who? It's really whoever God has put in your life. God has surrounded you specifically with people that he wants you to love the way Jesus loved these 12 disciples. I want you to make a list. Who are the people that have been coming to your mind even as I've been sharing some of those things? Who are the people that God is calling you to love? And here's the second one, is that you begin then, once you identify your who, is you identify your how. You see, as a a church, we're gonna do a bunch of things this year. 
We're gonna have stuff that, that we're gonna do together and we're gonna put some things on the calendar and we're gonna do events here at the church and there's gonna be things that are gonna be easy for you to invite people to and there's gonna be events that, that'll be easy for you to help people get connected to afterwards. You heard Kevin talking about the community picnics and things that we're gonna do in, in the geographical areas where you guys live. We are gonna offer those things this year, but here's the reality is that we don't know your who the same way you do. And so the best way for you to love those people is for you to identify what are their needs and how can I simply meet the needs of those people around me. If you love cooking, who can you invite over to enjoy your cooking, right? Have a big cookout. Make some meals, invite some of those neighbors, invite some coworkers over to share that with you. If you love watching movies or you love watching football, then don't watch it alone, watch it together. Invite other people to come over and start to build those relationships and start to find out some of those things. What are their family dynamics like? What are the things that are going on in their lives? How can you be praying for them and serving them and loving them the way Jesus did? If you're good at building or construction or fixing things, we have incredible ministries like Hope on the Home Front where you can make a difference in people's lives. If you love blowing stuff up, throw a 4th of July party and invite people over to be a part of that with you. If you're good at algebra, then start to tutor others or maybe start a study group. If you're great at teaching, then maybe join our middle school ministry or our high school ministry and, and, and lead a small group there. If you're good at acting and being up front, maybe join our, our Kids City large group or, or be a part of Kids City Live. If you're in the medical field, what can you do? How could God use the gifts and the talents you have here locally or maybe overseas in, in a medical mission opportunity? If you're an attorney and you're used to people yelling at you and flipping you off all the time, be a roadie. They get that all the time. It's fantastic. What is it that you can do to love the people immediately around you? Because here's what I believe. If every one of us began to act the way Jesus acted, I think people all around us would say, I want to be a part of this whole thing of following Jesus. Because when I see what you say lived out in your life and the way that you are meeting needs and loving people and being the church that way, I want to be a part of that. I got an email this past week um, from someone and, and uh, they were a little frustrated and upset. I don't think they go to our church, but they live right around us in this community. And um, it was a simple, simple thing, but as I was writing this message, God started to stir in my heart. They were angry because of, of something that we do, and this might not affect us on Saturday nights, but, um, but we, we, have, we have right across the street from us, right across from our entrance, um, there's a bunch of no parking signs. There's a grass area there. There's no sidewalk down there. The grass isn't mowed very often by the city. It doesn't look very nice. But, but in this email, this person that, that contacted me said, um, there's a lot of us that live in this community, and we use that path. And when you guys park there, it makes it difficult for us to use that path. And when you park there and the ground is soft, you put divots and ruts in the ground and it makes it difficult for us to, to carry our groceries and our things up and down that path. And, and, and I'm asking, would you please stop parking there? And as I was putting this together, I thought, man, we can't be that church, right, that says we love the people in our community. We, we say that we're all about reaching people and loving people where they are and turn our back to even small things like this. And so one of the things that we're gonna do is we're gonna ask the, the traffic control team that's out there, we're gonna ask them to not park over there anymore and we're gonna give them a couple spots um, in our parking lot and ask them to park there. And we're gonna ask our people to not park there anymore either. 
to not park on that grass strip over there. And we're gonna try and figure out ways that we can begin to love the people right around us. What I don't wanna have happen is that people right here in our community be blocked from meeting Jesus because our actions don't match our words. After service last week, I had a lady that came out and, um, and she lives in the community right down there as well, right next to Grace's soccer field. And she said, when we're in there and, and we're in that, that gravel lot, the dust kicks up and it covers our porch and it covers our windows and, and I can't entertain, I can't go outside because the dust just blows up everywhere. And she's a sweet lady. And I told her, I'm not sure what we can do about this in, in the long run, but here's what I'm gonna ask in the short run is, is if you park down there, would you consider maybe not parking there anymore? Would you consider just parking in our lot or, or driving up and, and taking the shuttle down? And I know that it, it's, it's maybe just a little thing, but Mike talked about it last week, is that sometimes we need to take the high road, right? We need to be the ones that say, you know what? We are gonna remove every obstacle from you meeting Jesus. And if you do park down there, here's what I'm gonna ask. Would you just drive as slowly as possible and try and create as little dust so that we can try and show the people right around us that we truly care, the way Jesus showed his disciples how much he cared for them. Imagine what this could look like if we began to live this out, if our actions matched our words together as a family. Imagine the impact it would have in our individual families, but imagine this crowd, this family going out into our community and beginning to live this way. Imagine how that would help us reach the triangle and change the world as we live out loud the way Jesus has called us to live and to love. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your incredible grace and your incredible love for us. The example that you set to not just say, I love you, but to go from everything that you had as God to becoming man, to dying on a cross for us. It wouldn't, been the same if you had just said you loved us. Jesus, you showed it. You loved us to the very end. You loved us perfectly. And God, although we're not perfect, may we begin to love people the exact same way. As a church across four different campuses, may our love not just be something we talk about, not just something that we say, not just something that we feel, but God, may our actions back it up. And Father, may people see you through the way that we live our lives and recognize that this church is a church where Jesus is ruling and a church that I want to be a part of to learn what it means to have this same kind of life of following Jesus. God, we thank you and we love you for your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.